This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. For anyone paying attention to the NBA, the summer of 2017 felt like it changed the landscape of the league in a seismic way. The Paul George sweepstakes ended with the Pacers sending their star forward to Oklahoma City. Kyrie Irving went to the Celtics, while Isaiah Thomas was dealt to the Cavs. And we all will remember where we were when Carmelo Anthony was finally set free from the Knicks, and how much we may have scratched our heads when we found out he was going to the Thunder. Depending on how you look at it, it's one of the most extravagant soap operas in all of sports. Kyrie versus LeBron is clearly like something out of Days of Our Lives. But the reality is, this is all about one team, the Warriors. And everyone in the NBA is trying to figure out their own plan on how to take down the champs. In today's show, Jackie McMullen brings us the inside story of one of the summer's biggest moves, the trade that sent Chris Paul from the Clippers to the Rockets. On the surface, Chris Paul and his new teammate, James Harden, have plenty in common. They just can't quite make the leap when it comes to the playoffs. They've won about five playoff series combined, so the simple math says putting together two great players should equal success. But how exactly do you get two star guards to share the ball? And when you've got two guys who are used to being the playmaker, can you make them coexist? It's the biggest question in Houston, and the stakes, a potential run to the NBA Finals, could not be higher. Before we jump in, a friendly reminder, if you like Double Truck Stories, do us a favor, and please subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. Join me after the story as Jackie joins us to talk about how a Chris Paul bobblehead played a crucial role in this story. And now, here's Better Call Paul by Jackie McMullen. Better Call Paul by Jackie McMullen for ESPN. James Harden's phone was squawking again. It had been yelling at him for weeks, ever since his implosion in Game 6 of the Western Conference semifinals when the most efficient offensive player in the NBA had wilted in the most critical game of his life. Most of the communication he'd received was sympathetic. Text messages like, You okay? Or, Stay strong. Even, Praying for you. Harden had dodged it all by simply not responding, but it was harder to ignore the criticism that had seemingly obliterated his season. Remember his league-leading 15-win shares? Remember how he was the first player in NBA history with 2,000 points, 900 assists, and 600 rebounds? All forgotten, reduced to rubble, in the wake of his inexplicable collapse. In that elimination loss on May 11th, a 39-point beatdown at home, Harden appeared so discombobulated that speculation mounted that he'd played concussed after an errant Pau Gasol elbow the game before. Harden rejected that notion assumed full responsibility for the debacle, including his 2-for-11 shooting, six fouls, and six turnovers, then retreated to Atlanta for some privacy and reflection. Sometimes, Harden says, I want to sit in my little box and be left alone. Now, on June 25th, Harden was dining with friends in L.A. when his phone lit up. Again. He glanced at his caller ID and excused himself from the table. Gotta take this one, he said. When he stepped outside, the name on the screen gleamed back at him. Chris Paul. I'm in, Paul said. What do you mean you're in? Harden asked. Harden and Paul were friends, and they had traded texts throughout the season. CP3, he knew, was examining his pending free agent options, and Harden was hopeful Houston was on Paul's shortlist, but he was in the dark about where Paul was leading. I mean I'm in, Paul repeated. I want to come to Houston. 
I want to play with you. Rockets general manager Daryl Morey had lusted after Paul for more than a decade. He was part of a Celtics staff back in 2005 that tried to deal its star, Paul Pierce, on draft night for the rights to the rookie point guard. As Houston's GM, Morey tried to trade for Paul in December 2011, when he was dealt from New Orleans to the Clippers. In 2013, the last time CP3's contract was up, Morey presented him with a custom-designed Chris Paul and Little Chris bobblehead. The rendition of the point guard and his son didn't land them a face-to-face free agency meeting, but for some reason, even after Paul re-upped with the Clippers, he held on to that bobblehead. And Maury held on to the dream. So it was that in Maury's war room this offseason, Houston's 2017 free agency whiteboard was dominated by his decision tree, a phalanx of available players, myriad numbers, some arrows, formulas, hypotheticals, and one name circled in red marker. Chris Paul. The end, for both men, was swift and cruel. As Harden sat at his locker after Game 6, alone, the helplessness reverberated. Player development coach Irving Rowland, who had been training Harden as a skills coach for eight years, quietly engaged in their signature handshake, then backed away. It was almost like everybody had a fear about talking to him, Rowland says. You could see how much he was hurting. How do you approach him? Will he freak out if you talk to him? That didn't stop veteran Rockets forward Trevor Ariza from walking over and slinging his arm around Harden's shoulder. This was a good experience for you, 100%, Ariza said, reminding Harden that every great, Magic, Jordan, LeBron, had terrible moments in his career. It's a pretty powerful thing when everyone is looking at you, pointing at you, and saying all these things about you. How are you going to handle it? Typically, in the weeks after the end of a season, Roland and Harden would reconvene for workouts. This time, Harden had taken a trip to Paris and Barcelona to recharge. In his absence, Roland had actually fielded calls inquiring about whether Harden had shaved points or even thrown the game. It was, Rockets coach Mike D'Antoni says now, a case of the whole year mounting up. He was doing so much for us. Maybe there were some situations where we could have rested him more, but he was chasing the MVP a little bit, and what Russell Westbrook was doing didn't help any because after he gets another triple-double, James is thinking, oh great, now I gotta really roll. We talked to him about it, but there was no answer to it, D'Antoni says. I wanted him to be MVP. I told him, let's go for it. But having that and the majority of the offense in his hands was difficult. The burden, Harden concedes, was too weighty. It's pretty tough to be dependent on to make every single play, he says. It wears on you when you don't have someone to relieve some of that for you. When you don't have that guy who you can throw the ball to for three or four possessions in a row and say, go make a play. Eleven days earlier, and some 1,500 miles to the west, Chris Paul's final Clippers playoff game was like so many others, disheartening. He had been superb throughout the first-round series with Utah, bearing the workload at a near-historic clip after Blake Griffin had been felled yet again by a medical malady, this time a toe injury. Paul had dropped 29 points and 8 assists in a road victory in Game 6 to keep the Clippers afloat. He was averaging 27.3 and 10 for the series. But in Game 7, after being held to 13 points on 6 of 19 shooting, he had departed from Staples Center feeling the burn of an old, familiar refrain. Will he ever win the big one? If he did, Paul concluded, it would have to be elsewhere. The scar tissue with the franchise had simply grown too thick. His turnover against Westbrook in the 2014 playoffs, the one that allowed a game-stealing shot in a pivotal Game 5 loss to OKC, still gnawed at him. He lamented the lack of another playmaker. As for persistent reports of dysfunction in the locker room, Paul says, I think the communication could have been a lot better there. 
The disconnect between Paul and Griffin was a known, unspoken reality, yet never one that was overtly disruptive or explosive. Blake and Chris had their ups and downs, but they already had that when I got there in 2015, former Clippers forward Luke Baamute says. You couldn't even tell. They didn't argue on the court. They didn't sit apart from each other off the court. Lots of teams have issues, but it was magnified with us because we lost in the first round, says J.J. Redick, who played with Paul for four seasons in Los Angeles. I tried to wrap my head around why we never won a championship or why, at times, there was friction with our team. I don't have a good explanation for it. I would say, as Chris did, that at times it felt laborsome, burdensome. It was time, Paul sensed, for a fresh start, with a team that would embrace his input, not chafe at it. We just ran our course there, Paul says. Houston, he determined, would be a better fit. On the night of June 27th, Chris Paul was hanging at One Oak in West Hollywood with LeBron James. The club thumped as Paul and LeBron exchanged greetings with Tristan Thompson and Joe Johnson, who dined with his wife at a nearby booth. When the clock struck 1 a.m. and they began plotting their exit from the private entrance ahead of the paparazzi, Paul noticed a text from his agent, Leon Rose. The trade to Houston had been consummated. Through a series of complex transactions, including the acquisitions of Darren Hilliard from Detroit and DeAndre Liggins from Dallas, then flipping them to the Clippers as part of a package for Paul, the Rockets had swapped Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Sam Decker, Montrez Harrell, Kyle Wiltshire, and a future first-round pick for their all-star. Paul was about to alter the power structure of the NBA. He was also about to take aim at the very player sitting next to him. LeBron's my man, but he didn't know, Paul says now. I didn't tell him initially because even though we're so close, we're also ultra-competitive. Twenty minutes later, Paul finally revealed his secret. LeBron's response? He ordered shots of Don Julio 1942 tequila and clinked glasses with his friend. Be happy, LeBron said. It was a genuine sentiment, yet one easier dispensed by a superstar in the Eastern Conference. Both James and Paul knew, even as the deal went down, that Golden State remained the title favorite. After the trade was announced, Houston's title odds rose from 30-1 to 1 to 15-1. to 1. The Warriors remained at 5-11. Still, Maury wasn't interested in Vegas's numbers. He had his own data to suggest that Paul would be a game-changer, particularly in taking pressure off Harden. According to ESPN's stats and information, when Harden's usage rate increased by 10%, his defensive effectiveness declined by 12%. Paul, meanwhile, had posted four of the top 100 seasons all-time in defensive win shares among guards. Three hours later, at 4 a.m., when Maury FaceTimed his new guard at Paul's California home, he discovered his newest acquisition clutching the bobblehead. See? Paul smiled, waving it at Maury. It's fate. To Harden, it looked like a weapon to fight the Warriors. When Maury next called him, at 4.15 a.m., Harden emitted a little happy noise, then immediately asked his GM, Who are we getting next? Maury, who'd been up all night, shot back, Can we just pause one second to celebrate the Hall of Famer we just got? Indeed, Houston now boasted two singular talents with high basketball IQs, both motivated by unfulfilled goals. Both had also procured reputations as stubborn, ball-dominant, and edgy, often difficult, leaders. Paul chose Mastro's Restaurant in Los Angeles to celebrate his Rockets union with Rockets CEO Tad Brown, D'Antoni, and team owner Leslie Alexander. The dinner conversation centered on communication, with Paul expressing a desire to know as much as possible about the team's blueprint. It was clear, Brown says, Chris was a guy who wanted to be a part of the process. As the Rockets' brain trust noshed on steak and pasta, Paul called Reddick and joked with him about the great tax breaks in Texas. 
On a warm September morning in Houston, Dentony observes his new two-headed point guard monster from the club seats of an otherwise empty Toyota Center. Some of his players, including Paul and Harden, have gathered for their daily scrimmage, and their coach is focused on one thing in particular. Who takes the ball out after a basket? Dantony abhors the notion of having to designate one player for this assignment. Within minutes, it becomes apparent this won't be necessary. When a three-point bomb by Ariza drops through, Paul instinctively retrieves the ball and fires it to Harden on the left side of the floor. Next time down, when Ariza scores again, it's Harden who is nearest to the basket, so he plucks the ball out of the strings and fires it 20 feet up court to his new running mate. The ball zips up the floor as the two point guards feed off each other. There's Paul lofting a lob to Clint Capella for a slam. There's Paul again as Harden fills the lane on the wing, the ball falling into Harden's hands. It's unbelievable, Harden will say later. I don't have to dribble, dribble, dribble. I can shoot it. Right now, because I'm wide open. Catch and shoot. I haven't done that in five years. Roland, who has trained Paul since his days in New Orleans, says he's never seen Paul happier. In addition to Harden, both Ariza and Bobby Brown, who played with CP3 in New Orleans, have been constant companions since his arrival. A bunch of us went to dinner the other night and talked about the AAU feel this team has, Paul says, a bunch of guys who love to be in the gym. It's gonna work, says Harden, who says he's giddy from the notion of Paul as a finisher on the pick-and-roll, as a mid-range shooter, as a three-point threat. Chris is starting to understand what I like and what I don't like. Same with me. So later this season, when we're yelling at each other on the court, it's not because I'm mad at him or don't like him. It's because we're having honest communication. Paul is certain he and Harden will make a great pair, because we can help each other. But the rub is how they defer to each other. Case in point, Harden spent almost all of last season as the primary ball handler in transition for the Rockets. Paul has assumed that role for every team he's been on in his 12-year career, but Harden, quite simply, might be better at it. According to Houston's analytics staff, Harden led the league with 873 kick-ahead passes, those advanced 25 feet or more toward the basket. The Rockets scored 477 points directly on such passes, tops in the NBA. By comparison, LeBron was second in the league with 777 kick-ahead passes, John Wall third with 633, and no one else had over 500. Paul ranked 27th with 267. Harden also scored or assisted on 4,538 points last season, one shy of the NBA record. The presence of Paul will invariably mean fewer field goal attempts and less scoring. Still, Harden insists he won't get hung up on numbers, shots, or attention. None of that, he says. It's about winning. We've both dealt with the negatives, the frustration, the disappointment. We can't have anything leaking into our goals. Says Maury, if Chris has the ball in a key moment and we make the wrong decision, or James has the ball and it goes bad, that's no big deal if it happens once. If it happens a few times, I can see tension developing. So let's see how it goes. Can they share playmaking duties? Who will run the break? Who takes the last shot? Who is one? Who is one A? Can two alpha males coexist with similar skill sets? Those answers, Dantony asserts, will make or break his new duo. Paul will need to learn to play faster, Dantony says, and Harden will need to remember he's alongside one of today's most gifted pick-and-roll maestros. Both will need to let go of their MVP aspirations. It's a matter of getting all the problems out front, Dantony says, not resolving them, because you can't until they happen, but at least we're discussing them. So when things go south a little bit, you say, hey, remember we talked about this in September? What you hope they say is, oh, that's right, we're good. It's really up to James and Chris. 
When stuff comes up, and it will, are we going to let it derail us, or are we going ahead with the plan? Maury continually conferenced Paul and Harden during the preseason on potential trades, including the Carmelo Anthony watch, the sale of the team, roster moves, and offensive sets. We bring our players into the fold in a major way, to a point where some teams would claim we're making a major mistake, Maury says. Meanwhile, D'Antoni hauled Paul and Harden into his office and laid out the specifics of their workload. Paul will log 32 to 33 minutes and Harden 34 minutes a night. I will have a Hall of Fame point guard on the floor at all times. I promise you that, D'Antoni says. Paul will come out of the game after five minutes of the first quarter, earlier than at any other point in his career. Harden, who prefers to play the entire first quarter, will now have to take a seat with two and a half or three minutes left. By D'Antoni's estimation, Paul and Harden will play 18 minutes together, including the final five of every game. That requires Harden to sit for the first four minutes of the final quarter. I already know there will be times when the game is close and James will be saying, this is bullshit, I gotta be in there, D'Antoni says, laughing. And I'm gonna say, I don't know what to tell you. We talked about this. James Harden was a college sophomore at Arizona State when O.J. Mayo, then a rookie with Memphis, invited him to meet some NBA luminaries who were in Phoenix for the 2009 All-Star Weekend. Mayo led him to a ballroom at the Four Seasons Hotel, where the All-Stars were congregating. Harden stood in the back, wide-eyed, as he took inventory of the room. There were LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul, all engaged in a spirited round of the card game Beret. The trio cackled and heckled one another as they tossed $100 bills into the pot. Paul paused mid-hand to say hello to a startled Harden, who said little as the All-Star made basketball small talk with him. I remember watching LeBron and CP3 and D-Wade interacting and thinking, wow, so this is how it's supposed to be, Harden says. But then you get into the league and you realize how precious that is. Today, as Paul leaves a franchise and relationships in his wake, he's hoping, like every new kid in town, that a change of locale might yield new BFFs. Harden, for his part, says he regrets not getting to know Dwight Howard better while the big man was in Houston, and vows not to repeat that mistake with Paul. The two have spent the summer bowling, eating, bawling, and taking in a Kendrick Lamar concert. Clippers coach Doc Rivers, meanwhile, is watching Paul's immersion into the Rockets with interest. He admits their relationship suffered at the bitter end. In early September, Rivers is sitting courtside at the TD Garden in Boston, where he returns annually to attend a charity event, and he says the disconnect between Paul and some of his Clippers teammates stemmed from accountability. I thought when Chris rubbed guys the worst was when he messed up, Rivers says, because when you mess up, you gotta take it. I didn't really think he did. But overall, he's a damn smart point guard, and you never have a problem coaching that. Some 1,850 miles away, and three weeks later, Paul has just come down from the roof of the Toyota Center. Up there, he has just posed for photos alongside Harden, and he's buoyant. Until the topic turns to the clippers. His smile fades, his brow furrows, and he rubs his temples. As Rivers' comments are relayed to him. Let Doc be Doc, he says, trailing off. I'm sure I'm a tough leader, Paul finally says. But if I'm so bad to play with, then how come Luke and JJ wanted to be here with me? Says Reddick, is Chris tough to play with? Yes, in the sense that there's an edge to the way he plays, and if you have a different personality, it can grind at you a little bit. I always liked it. Back at the Garden in Boston, Rivers says that as far back as the start of last season, he felt it was 50-50 whether Paul would leave. Paul, in Houston, vehemently denies this. I was all in with the Clippers, he insists. 
Rivers says the reason Paul has moved on is that he believes he can go deeper in the playoffs with Houston than if he'd stayed with the Clippers, which Rivers disputes. Chris earned the right to be a free agent, Rivers says, but the grass isn't always greener. We tell players that all the time. They'll find out. Paul, on a bench outside the Toyota Center, considers Rivers' stance, then purses his lips as though he's just sipped a glass of spoiled milk. He tugs at his Rockets uniform and glances to his left, where Harden is sporting the same jersey an arm's length away. Doc is exactly right, Paul says, his jaw set firmly. You can hope the grass is greener, and it may not be. But I'm going to walk around the corner and see. Welcome back. That was Better Call Paul by Jackie McMullen. Jackie's with us now on the line. Hi there, Jackie. How you doing, Justin? Good, good, good. So for a story like this, you know, the the last summer in the NBA with all the everything that was happening in trades and free agency was uh, an insane one. And with all with all the transactions that took place, what was it about this one in particular that that made you want to dive into it? Well, so I go back a long way with the general manager of the Rockets, Daryl Morey, and I remembered all the way back to um, the night that Chris Paul was drafted. Uh, Daryl Morey was part of a Celtics staff, um, a small part, as he will tell you. He was in the <laughs> analytics department back then, uh, and they were trying to trade Paul Pierce for the rights to Chris Paul. And I remember years later kind of piecing that together. And, and so I remember asking Daryl Morey about it, and it was clear to me he really lusted after Chris Paul. So when I saw that he finally got him, I thought to myself, you know, there's a pretty good TikTok just of Daryl's journey to get to Chris Paul, and my guess is that that will be true of the others. So that's how it started. I actually called Daryl up and said, hey, uh, let's do a story about how this came to be because I know you've been looking at him for years, and he had actually – at one point on a Reddit chat some years ago, had asserted that Chris Paul was arguably the best point guard of all time. And as you can imagine, that caused quite a bit of a stir because Chris Paul's never been past the second round. Yeah, and yeah. The, the haters came out in, uh, in, in scores, scores and scores of haters, you know, pretty much degrading Daryl Morey and Chris Paul. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? This would be. I bet there's. I bet there's some interesting backdrop to this for 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 Maury, for Harden, for D'Antoni, and for Chris Paul. Well, where were you surprised by where this story took you? Because as you said, in 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 some ways, this is a this is a TikTok. This is a transaction. But obviously, it gets into some things that are deeper there in terms of the relationships, right. in terms of um, the team dynamics. You know, what was the exactly. reality of what you were looking to report right. versus what you actually uncovered? Of course. So the the biggest mistake any writer can make is going in with a preconceived notion, because if you do that, <laughs> sometimes you miss the best narrative that's right in front of you. And in the case of this, it became clear to me uh, in talking with Chris for 10 seconds, I think, the communication. He mentioned he must have me- mentioned communications four times in the first five minutes that we were speaking. And it became clear to me that all those rumors and innuendos that we heard about the dysfunction with the Clippers and the lack of communication and the uh, the disconnect between the players, uh, there was something to it. And Chris was very careful in his words, uh, but, of course, it, what you do from there is you immediately go back and talk to his coach, to the GM, to the players surrounding him, and you try to get a little deeper into why 
a player would leave a seemingly great situation. Remember, he's the president of the union and right. negotiated the very kind of contract he could have signed in with the Clippers that would have paid him a lot more money than um, than the move he made to Houston. So that was one offshoot. And then, of course, on the other side, you have James Harden, who had a just an inexplicable collapse in, in game six against Houston. And, and both Chris Paul and James Harden had, had the reputations of being a, difficult leaders, sort of uh, tough on their teammates when things didn't go right. So it seemed like a natural uh, connection for, to the two of them, but also to the piece to, to figure out, okay, let's dive a little deeper. What do you mean by that? What, why is it hard for you to get along with others? What were some of your experiences and now going forward with this new teammate who has the same skill set as you and is a you know a future Hall of Famer, how are you going to resolve the issues you may have had in the past? So that, that led us to a pretty good place, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking about the implosions, like the stories start with the, sort of in the immediate, um, the immediate aftermath of that. What made you want to start there? You know, in, in writing this, how did you decide what was the, the, the beginning point of this? Well, I thought the fact that, uh, you know, we so rarely these days, and journalists will tell you this, it's so hard to get inside, if you will. And the fact that I had this scene where James Harden's in a restaurant and has been ignoring his phone all summer because everybody's feeling sorry for him or deriding him or criticizing him. And that he's in L.A. with some friends for dinner and the phone rings and he looks at it. And it's the first one of the first phone calls he's answered all summer because the the light on the on his phone, the, the name on the phone is Chris Paul. I thought that was a great way to introduce uh, the angst of both men and, and to show, hey, I'm, you know, Chris Paul says on that phone conversation, I'm coming. And, and Harden's not even sure what he's talking about. <laughs> I thought that would be a great way to get into these two guys are going to change each other's careers for better or for worse. Uh, and as their coach says later in the piece, the only way it doesn't work is if they don't make it work. So it's, it's kind of all on them. Yeah, exactly. The uh, so things that, that starting off very early in the piece, like you mentioned, the, the the crucial phone call that Harden gets, the 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 fact that CP still had that that bobblehead. Oh, wasn't uh, that so funny? That, yeah, that was one of my favorite details. That's so yep. perfect. That's so perfect. Uh, for you, how do you you know how are you cultivating those details, and how do you want to use those in the telling of this story? Because right. you know those things become touches that you know you carry on phone call from one part to the next part in in the opening mm-hmm. section. Uh, as well as sort of the importance of the bobblehead comes back up much later on. Right. Uh, so how did you, you know, sort of how do you use the, the these details for emphasis in this piece? Well, sometimes you you don't even know what you have. If if you so, I remember I, I was asking Chris Paul about this. Did he know that Daryl Morey had this obsession with him? And you know, he was only vaguely aware of it because he's a player. And he said, "Well, you know, they tried for me that time in 2013 when my contract was up, but I didn't even." Uh, you know, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I just wasn't going to, uh, I wasn't even going to give it any thought. He goes, but you know, they, I got a cool bobblehead out of it. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, they did this bobblehead of me and Lil Chris. Now, I had already talked to Daryl Morey three times by that point, and he had never mentioned the bobblehead. <laughs> so then you go back, and I said, Daryl, the bobblehead, what about the bobblehead? He goes, oh, that's right. Yeah, we had that all made up, custom designed for him. It didn't even get us a face-to-face meeting. So now all of a sudden you're putting together these little details, and, and uh, the fact that he not only remembered that they had given him the bobblehead, but that he kept it. And then, of course, when they FaceTime at 4 in the morning, after the, you know, the trade has finally been consummated, 
Chris Paul's waving the bobblehead in the FaceTime. So I thought it was just a great, a great little detail. And sometimes you just stumble on those by accident. It's perfect. It's so perfect. The, you, you spent a little time going through the pain that these guys have had in terms of the, the, the playoff exits and specifically right. where Harden was at. Um, you know, why was it important to sort of get into what his, his mindset was at? Because it, it, it seems like both of these guys had to come to a realization about the need for, for help. Exactly. So that's part of it, number one. But also remember that we haven't really heard from James Harden since that game six collapse where he really literally disappeared and the the Spurs who were shorthanded without Tony Parker and uh, without Kawhi Leonard just shock everyone by winning that series. And so um, I give Harden a lot of credit. He, he, He went to the press conference after that game. He took responsibility for the fact that he didn't play well and the team you know, didn't play well, but then he disappeared. So one of the reasons I thought that was important was because we had never really heard him talk about this. And uh, I thought it was very revealing, some of the things he said in this piece, particularly about, hey, you know what, just, there's just, I, I didn't think I was exhausted, but you just build up and build up and then it gets to the playoffs and we build up even more and it's more intense. And just, just one time, I just want to be able to throw the ball to somebody and yeah. say, go make a play. Yeah. And, of course, here comes Chris Paul to be that somebody. So in terms of the access, how much time did you get with, with Harden and Chris Paul? Yeah, not much time. Yeah. That, seems to be, <laughs> uh, that seems to be a reoccurring theme we, we hear on this show. Right. But, uh, but you know what? It's funny. I know Chris really well. Mm-hmm. And he probably gave me 30 minutes, I'm yeah. going to say. He was only supposed to give me 20. They came to cut it off, and he waved them away, which was generous of him. So I probably talked to him for 30 minutes, and then I was fortunate enough. I was there for a few days, so I saw him one or two other times. It could snatch one more question in there, if you will. Yeah. Uh, James Harden and I don't know each other very well. I certainly interviewed him before, but I didn't have much of a relationship with him. We sort of just hit the right notes for whatever reason. And again, I only had the 20 minutes with him. Uh, when the PR people came by again, he said, oh, are we done? And I said, not if you don't want to be. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately for me, uh, he did have something else he had to do yeah. uh, for the PR people. So I had him for about 25 minutes. And then again, the same thing the next day and the day after, because I was there for a few days, I could try to snatch questions with him. But, but what I discovered with James was when we were in the moment, we really did we were having a great conversation and he was very open. I thought he was excellent in this piece um, because he's not always a good interview. And I really thought he bared his soul a little bit. And so we really had something going, but then in the subsequent days, uh, whatever that was kind of got lost. He was back to being a little bit aloof and a little bit looking at his watch. Got to go kind of thing. So uh, I didn't have that experience with Chris, but really in the end, I thought James, the stuff, James, the stuff from James and Mike D'Antoni was probably the most interesting, the most powerful stuff in the piece. I would I would definitely agree with that. But quickly on that last point, when you know that you're going to have a limited amount of time with these guys, how do you decide which areas you want to drill into? Because obviously there's so much in this piece. You know what right. what things are you looking at? Relationships? Is it you know past present mm-hmm. relationships? You know their mood and games. What are the areas exactly. that you want to emphasize when you have that limited time with these guys? Well, I went in you know with with some ideas, and then Chris changed my mind. I talked to Chris first, and when he just kept mentioning communication, communication, and this, I thought, okay, this is where we're headed. He's yeah. he's leading me this way, and so my questions to James changed dramatically based on that. And you know, one of the questions I asked him was, so Chris talks a lot about communication. What about you? Where have you fallen down with that? And that's when he admitted, you know, I didn't handle the Dwight Howard thing very well when Dwight Howard was playing here. I didn't bother to get to know him off the court. 
And so what happened was when things went wrong on the court, we didn't know each other well enough to try to to work through that. He said, I will not make that mistake again. And, uh, and of course, Chris Paul's coming out of the Clippers situation. And I had talked to Doc Rivers in advance of Chris. And Doc had some very startlingly, very startling, uh, blunt comments that really surprised me about Chris that were, you know, pretty critical. And um, so I did relay those to Chris. So obviously that's that that led to some of his comments about the whole Clipper situation. Yeah, the story and, really is about communication, right? And it's amazing. And I want to get into that because that last that last arc in in the piece is amazing because mm-hmm. you got you're going you're going back and forth between mm-hmm. what Doc is saying in Boston and what's happening at this photo shoot. How how did you? pull that together like what you know how did you figure out that this is something that had to talk to each other um and, and specific miles yeah across the miles <laughs> right well i have to give ross Marins and my editor a little bit of credit for that but that was something that he thought we really should place them physically place them in houston in boston and it's just a coincidence that doc was in boston normally of course he would be in la but he does do this charity event every year in boston i actually participate in the same charity event so i always see him there and uh you know at the time i saw doc he was as you can imagine upset disappointed it had just happened it well not just happened that's not true it was early september and he was still processing it and there was you know a bit of fallout there was some comments made um, back and forth between other people. And so he was, I think, probably a little more raw than perhaps Chris was. Uh, And yet it's clear to me, the two of them, and they had a, a, they started out having a great relationship, but point guard and point guard, I've always said coaches who are point guards, coaching point guards, there's always going to be tension. I think for the (laughs) most part, it's good. No, I really believe that. And I, most of the time, I think it's, it's um, constructive tension. And I saw this with Doc Rivers when Rondo was in Boston. I witnessed that firsthand. And the tension was really good for a while. And then in the end, not so good. Not so much. And I think that's what happened with, with Doc and Chris at the end of their time together. And so I just thought that was important because there was a lot of talk about Austin Rivers. And the, in fact, I purposely didn't put Austin in the story because my reporting suggested that you know, while some players may have had some reservations about Austin Rivers and the fact that his father may or may not have favored him, it was clear to me that really had nothing to do with why Chris Paul left uh, Los Angeles. It really had more to do with his relationship with Doc Rivers and the fact that those two, you know, near the end just weren't seen. They were having trouble communicating in, in a positive fashion. I think both of them conceded that in the piece. So that that was a you know, we we were talking about it as we were right as I had written it was, you know, oftentimes when you do a piece like this, especially of this length, you kind of, you know, you kind of, I don't want to say trail off, but the piece, you know, we thought it would be really great to kind of come back around with a very strong bang um, at, at the end of the piece. And I, I think it worked. Sticking with uh, point guard on point guard communication, the big issue, one of the big issues here that's been, you know, a question ever since the trade and that you dive into is who's going to be the ball handler for this team mm-hmm. how are they going to divvy up the the, the um you know play caller responsibilities right. from the time that you spent with them I guess there's two questions that i have is how much of an issue is this really for this team because it seems like d'antoni's figuring it out and they're both you know harden and, and paul are saying the right things how big of a concern is it for these guys well, it is a bit of a concern just because Chris Paul's been one person his entire, one kind of player his entire career, and now you're going to ask him to be something a little different, to play off the ball a little bit. And I think that is appealing to Chris Paul in spurts. 
right? <laughs> yes. So that's the big, there, uh, there's the rub, if you will. I thought it was interesting when Dan Tony broke it down to me that according to his math, because he wants to limit Paul's minutes to around 32 a night, which is exactly what he played on opening night. Yeah. Uh, he he the way he broke it down for me was they would only be on the court for a total of 18 minutes together which is really interesting when yeah. you think about it but his i think for D'Antoni it was more important to have one of them on the court at all times than having them both on the court together at all times and i think that's a good decision on his part by the way and so what it means is concessions chris paul's got to come out of the first quarter earlier than he ever has in his career james harden traditionally likes to play the entire first quarter nope not not this time now he's going to have to come out with a, you know 2 3 minutes left in the first quarter and the and ideally you put them both on the court in the final 8 minutes together now uh, for opening night for the rockets uh, Chris Paul's dealing with a little bit of a knee, a cranky knee, some soreness. So he sat actually for the final five minutes of this game, but that's right, not going right. to be the norm. Now, if you look at the numbers from that game, first game, and it is only the first game, they struggled a little bit when they were on the court together. James Harden had amazing numbers when he was playing out there without Chris Paul. Chris Paul did decently without James Harden on the floor with him. When the two of them were out there together, that was the worst of those three scenarios. So they, they've got some work to do. I, I do appreciate, though, that D'Antoni does a little bit of smoothing by saying, you know, either way, I'm going to have a Hall of Famer on the court, Isn't so that I, yeah. I it win. It means it. He really means it. I said, what if they have four fouls? He said, well, they're never going to have four fouls. And he said, and even if they do, I don't care about fouls. I said, wow, I wish I played for you. My coach <laughs> used to pull me out with two fouls right away. I sat a lot because of that. Uh, well, well, finally, Jackie, the thing that really strikes me the most about this is that you spend time illustrating these various ways that these players have relationships, whether it's Chris Paul hanging out with LeBron when all of this is going down right. to how, you know, CP and, and Harden are basically saying they want to actively try to spend time together and be buddies and go bowling mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. What, what do you think it is that people don't understand about the relationship and the importance of relationships between players in the NBA right now? Right. And it's funny because it's different now. I mean, I, I go all the way back to the old days, they call it, you know, when Bird and Magic and all those guys are playing. And I mean, Larry Bird would no more go bowling with Magic Johnson. You know, <laughs> that would never happen. You know, it was important for Larry Bird to consider the person playing across for him as dead to him. You know, it, he didn't want any fraternization. He was against that. He hated it. And and by the way, so did Magic's coach, Pat Riley. And I always thought it was interesting. Larry Bird's coach, Casey Jones, didn't care. He was more like Magic. And so, but today's world, these guys have all grown up together through AAU. It matters to them. They develop these friendships when they're teenagers, and, and it stays with them. That's how Chris Paul and LeBron met, was on the, on the AAU circuit. They've been friends for a long time. And the, the part I liked best was Harden's quote. So, so Harden's a young player at Arizona State, and his friend O.J. Mayo says, hey, uh, the All-Star game's here in Phoenix. Come on over. And he takes him to this ballroom of all these NBA stars and here's this little kid, James Harden, standing there watching Chris Paul and LeBron and Dwayne Wade play a card game called Bure that a lot of the uh, NBA players play. Bure, I think it's said. Mm-hmm. Bure, I think is how you pronounce it. And he's, and he's watching them interact and they're betting and they're laughing and they're joking and they're making fun of each other and they're dissing each other. And, and he said, wow, so that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that those three players have never played together? Yeah. They've not, I mean, unless you count Olympic, which I don't really, that's different to me. That's a whole different <laughs> venue. So I think James Harden and, and Chris Paul are both, you know, Chris Paul knows what he has because he hangs with those. Those are his boys. He hangs with them. And, and James Harden, as a very young guy, identified, wow, this is what I want. How do I get this? 
So we'll see if the two of them can generate that kind of camaraderie and that kind of connection. Absolutely. Jackie McMullen, thank you for being on the show today. It is my pleasure, Justin. I enjoyed it. Thank you. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash Double Truck. Double Truck is all one word. And for more on the new NBA season, you can go to ESPN.com slash NBA. And if you want to hear more NBA stories here on Double Truck, make sure to check out our previous episodes, including Baxter Holmes' story, The Charcuterie Board That Revolutionized Basketball. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Robier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. And once again, if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to Double Truck Stories on your favorite podcast player. It would be much appreciated. We'll be back soon with more stories. Until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.